Reading this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and through to verse 14. Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies, they said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, it's a remarkable history, right? Um, Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians like over a hundred years earlier and all this rubble, all this ruin. And when God's people, the Jews, were allowed by the Persian Empire to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, they, they only rebuilt a little bit, enough so they could have a house and kind of get by a lot of rubbish in the streets. Things weren't wonderful, but there they were. And it was breaking Nehemiah's heart when he heard these reports that Jerusalem was just a mess because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of the presence of the living God. 
It was supposed to be the center of the whole earth, sending out a message of hope and light and truth that this is the way to live, God's way. Go to Jerusalem, find out how to really live a righteous, just, peaceful life. And this was the vision and the purpose of the city of Jerusalem, and Nehemiah knew it. And so he had been praying back in Persia, God, would you send me? Would there be a way to rebuild this city? And the emperor, you remember the story, he basically gave Nehemiah a blank check. Here's all the resources you need, all the money you need, all the protection you need to make the journey south to Jerusalem and rebuild that city. Nehemiah showed up, and at first everyone's like giving him a high five. Wow, you got you got the king's money to help rebuild. And then as the project is actually getting off the ground, all opposition breaks loose. And that's what we were just hearing, right? So it's just an amazing thing. I love Nehemiah's, what would you call it, his speech to the workers on the wall. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is awesome and great and fight, 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 fight. There are some great battle speeches in history. Pericles, standing with the Athenians, about ready to go to war with Sparta. Ah, the Spartans. And what does Pericles say? When our fathers stood against the Persians, they had no such resources as we have now. It was by wisdom, not by good luck. It was by courage rather than by material power that they drove back the foreigners and made our city what it is today. We must live up to the standard they set. We must resist the enemy in any and every way and try to leave to those who come after us in Athens, an Athens that is as great as ever. And the Greek soldiers are like, yeah, let's go kill some Spartans. Or maybe if you're not so much into history, but you're a Tolkien fan, you can picture the gates of Mordor and King Aragorn standing in front of the Rohirrim and the men of Gondor for the final battle to end all battles. And what does Aragorn say? Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. Ah, oh, don't you love that? Even if you don't like the books or the movies. It is not this day that we give up and let humanity, you know, be toast. Today is the day to stand and fight. 
Where did Tolkien get that phrase, by all that you hold dear? I know it's a cliche, but where do we get that cliche? Get it from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is standing there, and he details out, by all you hold dear, your brothers. We're told by people who actually have been in the trenches that when you actually fight, you're fighting not for some ideal, not for some philosophy, not for something out of a book. You're fighting for your brothers in arms, your comrades, your buddy next to you. So Nehemiah says, remember, fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wife, for your home, not just your property, but a a place of connection, of locatedness, of belonging. But what does Nehemiah say first that Pericles and all the great generals usually leave out? He says, do not be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord. And he's not just using God's name as a kind of civil religion sprinkling of some religious power. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember who your God is. We've just been praying to him. Remember who we were praying to and then fight. It's, it's a beautiful speech. It's all very inspiring. But of course, you and I are probably not going to be going to war anytime soon. I kind of romanticize, fantasize about what I would do in a great emergency. I would stand and I would fight. But it's in our everyday, almost trivial conflicts that our actual character is revealed that our actual life is tested, not in the hypothetical big battle to save all battles, but just in the ordinary conflicts that we have at home, at work, on the phone, online. It's these little everyday conflicts that we need wisdom so that we can truly be in the holy fight the good fight of the faith. And so if we are going to be thinking about how can we fight well, Nehemiah and the workers on the wall, they were working well and they were fighting, at least ready. They were prepared to fight well if they had to. How can we be prepared in conflict to give glory to God in our conflict. Well, I would suggest that there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves the next time we are in a conflict. If you're like me, you're like almost always in conflict. Like we just walk around inviting trouble into our lives and we're negotiating little conflicts all the time. Okay, what are some questions we need to ask? Number one, where is God in this conflict? God is present at all times and all places. He is not absent from this conflict. I don't want to assume that God is on my side in the conflict, so I would be wise to ask myself the question, where is God in all of this? Secondly, why exactly am I fighting again? I'm in this conflict with someone. What am I fighting for? Nehemiah is telling the workers on the wall, remember what you're fighting for, your homes, your wife, your kids. Your brothers, remember the Lord. Well, 
am I remembering what I'm fighting for? Or has it become, in most of my conflicts, I end up fighting for my pride, my self-respect, my reputation. It's like not exactly fighting for the glory of God, right? Remember, if you are fighting a holy fight, what are you fighting for? Third question, how can I be more concerned with God's glory in this conflict than I am with my own agenda? Because when I'm embroiled in a conflict, I'm I'm just consumed with my interests that I need to defend. How can I be more concerned with God's glory next time I'm in a conflict? Well, Nehemiah, it seems, he was grounded in all of these things. He knew where God was in this conflict. He knew what he was fighting for, and he's ultimately concerned about the things that matter to the Lord. Three lessons I'd like us to consider from Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. The first is, your mission is harder than you might think. Secondly, we'll see that the opposition to your mission is worse than you might think, and that prayer is more important than you might think, that you are praying to a a greater and more awesome God than you can imagine. But let's start with the mission that you've been given is harder than you might think. Nehemiah's mission was more difficult than he might have thought back in Persia when he was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes and first agreed to take on this mission of rebuilding the wall. Because, you know, if all it was was rebuilding the wall, that is a doable task. He secured funding for the project. He knew that there was a labor base willing to do the work once he got there. What can go wrong, right? Well, Nehemiah, your mission was harder than you thought because his mission ultimately isn't just rebuilding a city. What was We have to remind ourselves, what was rebuilding Jerusalem about? Jerusalem was to be the holy city of the king. It was to be the city of God's presence in the world. It was to be a new garden of Eden. In the center of this city was to be the temple, the holy of holies, the place where God's glory would reside. And from that central place, go out into all the world with hope, with truth, with training and righteousness and justice and peace. And so Nehemiah is not just going there to build a wall. He's, he's arrived in Jerusalem with this mission that's harder than he thought. And the mission was prepare a city for the coming king and prepare a people for the coming king. The condition of the wall was bad. The condition of the people's hearts was likewise a mess. And by the time you get to the end of Nehemiah's book, if you read ahead, because I admit it's taken us like a few years to make our way through Nehemiah as we, you know, take it like every six months or so. But if, if you read to the end of the book, Nehemiah does not sound like he's so excited that he was successful. It's, you kind of wonder, Nehemiah, did you do anything? I mean, yes, you built the wall. That part of the mission checked that box. 
And that wall was still standing 500 years later when Jesus walked in. Nehemiah's wall was still there. But what about that more difficult part of the mission, preparing the hearts of the people to meet their coming king? You get to the end of Nehemiah's book, he's kind of discouraged about that part of the mission. Your mission and my mission, our mission is not identical to Nehemiah's. We'll get to that later. But if if you want to know what was making Nehemiah tick, what motivated him to keep praying, to keep fighting, to keep leading this building project, I think we get a clue if we read a book that Nehemiah would have read, the book of Isaiah. I believe that in Isaiah 58, Nehemiah read and understood the mission God had given to him. In Isaiah 58, verse 10, it says this, If you pour yourself out for the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And here it is. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Have you ever at work been in one of these professional development seminars where they make you write the mission and the vision of the company and you're wordsmithing it and you're like, this is so about a bunch of nonsense? And then they're like, now we want you to write a mission statement for your life. My mission is to get out of this meeting, you know, without selling my soul to, yeah. So, but if Nehemiah were to write a mission statement for his life, I believe he would go to Isaiah 58 and say, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be when I grow up. The repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. He wasn't going to save anybody. He wasn't the Messiah who would die for his people's sins. He was just making a way in advance, preparing a city in advance, preparing a people in advance by repairing the walls and restoring the streets. It's a beautiful thing. Anyone involved in a civil uh, government bureaucratic job, I would take that on as I put it on my desk or my little bulletin board wall or something. This is what I am, a repairer of the breach, a restorer of the streets. It's a great vision, whether I'm picking up trash or, or working with people in conversation. Repairer of the breach, everything that's been broken, rebuilding broken things, restoring streets so that they, they can be flourishing and, and vibrant and the economy can be going again and people can trust each other and not be in fear. That was Nehemiah's mission, and it was harder than he probably thought back in Persia. Secondly, not only is your mission harder than you think, but the opposition is a lot worse than you might think. 
We do expect some opposition to the gospel mission of Jesus in this world, but we don't always expect all hell to break loose when we start loving people. We, we expect someone to come and high-five us and say, we're so glad that you've been volunteering. And instead, there's great opposition. Nehemiah and the workers on the wall, they were experiencing a full-on, well-funded propaganda campaign from Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. They were all coming at them rather quickly. False accusations, threats. Don't you love that phrase at the beginning of the chapter that Sanballat jeered at the Jews? A lot of that's still going on in the world, jeering at the Jews. Words of doubt and shame were being planted by clever voices. You're such a loser. Your life is making zero difference. Hope you know that. Time to quit building the wall right now because it's so dumb what you've been doing. Mocking the mission of the people of God. Mocking the mission of the people of the coming king. How do you deal with it when people mock the mission of the church? When they mock and jeer your biblical convictions at your worshiping and praying to the God of the Bible. How do you respond to all that jeering? Sanballat and Tobiah, they wanted Jerusalem to remain weak, vulnerable, and unfruitful so that they could go on doing what they wanted to do. A rebuilt wall, a well-ordered city, was going to mean a city of laws and order, and that was not their personal vision for how they wanted to live their life. And so instead, they unleash criticism galore. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, this wasn't among the Ashdodites and the Ammonites. This is like fellow Jews. They started being impacted by the propaganda. And what are they saying in verse 10? Ah, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. Hmm. You ever feel that criticism, that barrage of unceasing opposition? It finally wears you down. And all of this constant assessment attached to negative predictions. You know, I, I'm just sorry to say that the data is not supporting your desire to sustain the program. We had hoped that the rubrics would be coming out differently, but the statistics don't lie. And we're just not meeting our benchmarks here. So we're going to have to discontinue this program. I know it's near and dear to your heart, but... You see the numbers. We've given it a lot of time. We can't do this wall project, Nehemiah. It was a good try. You're a good soul. Man, I, I hope there's a place for you back in Persia. But it wasn't just this kind of low-level criticism. Look how it got kind of hot in verse 11. There was a plot 
until we come among them and kill them. So yeah, this, this was very serious. This was an evil agenda. And when you back up to verse 8, you see a word that I think unmasks the true nature of this opposition and shows you that it was demonic, that it was evil. Because in verse 8, we read that the agenda was not just to stop the wall project. It was to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. That's the word that I think just reveals the truth about the opposition. You know, God is not the author of confusion, right? But there is one who would spread lies and deceit and divide people, who comes against any unity that would exist in the people of God and would sow seeds of confusion. That's what's happening here. This opposition is worse than we might think. I'm sure that Nehemiah knew going south to Jerusalem, not everybody's going to love me, not everybody's going to follow me. But did he know that it would get this bad? What happens when people come against you with verbal insults, jeering at your faith, mocking you? If you're anything like me, I want to fire back, insult for insult. Oh, yeah, I'm as witty as you think you are, and, and I'll just fire off in my mind, if not out loud, insult for insult. You know, that's not how Nehemiah responded. We'll see in a bit how he did respond, but just to make the point that things were worse than he might have thought, the opposition, look at verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, near the enemies, came from all directions and said to us ten times. What did they say ten times? Well, first, let's just feel the, the situation's weight, the, the seriousness of this. There is Nehemiah inspecting the workers on the wall, and someone taps him on the shoulder. A delegation is here from one of the towns in Judah. Oh, this is great. We have time for that. Delegation, what do you have to report to me? We have prepared a statement, Nehemiah. <clears throat> it pains us to have to say this, but we want you to quit. Thank you for your coming all this way with this opinion. Um, thank you. That means a lot to me that you would care. Oh, here's another delegation. Delegation number two. Nehemiah, we are unanimous. Please quit. The third group shows up. An hour goes by, the tenth group shows up. Ten times from different parts of Judah. Boy, the opposition had done their work, right? They got Nehemiah's own people to come to him and say, thanks but no thanks. Please quit now because their message was, you must return to us. And that word return is the word that's sometimes translated repent. You must change your direction, change your mind. We know that you came down here with an agenda to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah, it's going to be hard for you. Just give it up. Give it up. This, this isn't the hill to die on. Return to us. Repent. Please quit. 
So the opposition was a lot worse than he might have thought. And the opposition that you and I are up against, if the fight is the fight of the Lord, the spread of the gospel and all the earth, the resistance to the spread of the gospel is worse than we might think. So what are we to do if our mission is difficult and the opposition is bad? We are, third point, to pray to the God who is greater and more awesome than we can imagine. And that is what Nehemiah does in verse 4. As soon as the first wave of criticism comes, he does not trade insult for insult. He prays, verse 4, Hear, O our God. Right away he prays. Prayer is your first response. It is the first response anytime you are on mission and are facing opposition. First response, prayer. But it's not just your first response. Did you notice? It's your first and repeated response. Look down at the next time they pray. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard day and night. So we will pray better in emergencies, in times of conflict, if we have been praying all along. Does that make sense? Nehemiah was able to pray as a reflex, as a first kick-the-knee reflex in the time of conflict because he had been a man of prayer all along. And so you and I, well before we're in the midst of conflict, can become people of prayer so that it's our instinct to do so when all the chips are down. Prayer as a first and repeated response in a time of conflict is important in this way because trusting God in the middle of your conflict is more important than winning. Okay, a lot of our conflicts are just with other people and not against principalities and, you know, evil spirits. And and, in our conflicts with other people, we don't always have to win. The big win would be trusting God. And trusting God is attached to prayer. You are taking your conflict straight to God. Because if there's anything good in your conflict, it's belonging to God. God, this is your project. This is your mission. It was your promises that provoked me to go on to this mission of love to my neighbors. This belongs to you. I'm experiencing opposition. I'm taking it straight to you. Prayer will prepare you to respond without fear, or at least with less fear. Look at verse 14. In his speech, Nehemiah says, Do not be afraid of them. He was able to say, Respond with no fear because he had first aligned himself with the Lord in prayer. When we come to God in prayer in the middle of our conflict, we are being reminded that it's not just the end goal that matters, but even how we get there, the the end and the means, right? And it's not just that, oh, I'm on a holy mission from God. I have a, a really righteous cause. Even how I intend to get there must be in submission to God. And prayer is going to help you get all of the means, all of the methods and tools in alignment with God's holy purposes. In verse 9, the workers on the wall, they end up setting a guard 
day and night. And you can think about this. I know it's kind of obvious that you need a guard at night if people are coming to kill you. But what this is, is Nehemiah is thinking through, what are my weaknesses? And then he's developing a plan to meet that weakness. And as you and I bring our conflict to God in prayer, we are being prepared to respond without fear day and night. What are my weaknesses? What kind of biblical plan can be developed to respond to that? And I love how the people respond in verse 6. There's so much that I, you know, like want to put it on a plaque on the wall or something. It's such a good statement. Their lives are on the line. People are trying to kill them. Verse 6, what did they do at the end of that verse? Well, halfway through the verse, they had a mind to work. I love that. So the people had a mind to work. They didn't have a mind to quit. They had a mind to go back to work. But the, the line I really love is at the end. Oh, no, no, it's at the beginning of the verse. Verse 6 starts this way. So we built the wall. I just love that. It's like they're saying all this stuff. They're lying, threats, false accusations. You know what we did? We built the wall. I'm in conflict. Everybody hates me. You know what I did? I got up in the morning and I put on my shoes and I walked out the door and I went to work. It's so good. It's like I prayed and then we built the wall. It's like we did not stop. There wasn't anything fancy about it. They didn't come up with a new way of building walls. It was just, yep, they wanted us to quit. So you know what we did? We prayed and then we built the wall. So we built the wall. Prayer will force you to remember the Lord, his purposes, his glory, his promises. Now, if you've been tracking this far, we've come to the, the final thing that I think is worth our time looking at this morning from this text. Maybe it's been bugging you. I hope it's been bugging you. It's like, oh, he's skipping over this, right? Verse 4 and 5, Nehemiah's prayer. I've been telling you it's so wonderful that he prayed, but how did... What did you think? How did you like his prayer? Did you want his prayer to be like your model prayer for this week? Lord, I'm just going to pray the Nehemiah prayer. You you write your, your manager at work a little note. I'm praying for you using Nehemiah 4, verses 4 and 5. And your manager doesn't know how to even find Nehemiah, so you're good. You're okay. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. So far, so good, Nehemiah. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. That's okay. It's kind of like saying, God, give them what they deserve. But the real problem is verse 5. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Because they've provoked you to anger, Lord. Okay. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. They're all through the Psalms. What do you think about this? What You know, it's like Jonah the prophet knew that God was a God who was patient and compassionate and forgiving. And that's why he did not want to go to Nineveh and preach to them about judgment because he thought they might repent and God might forgive. Nehemiah knows that God has a track record of covering over people's guilt, of 
blotting out their sin. And in his prayer, Nehemiah is saying, Lord, not this time. Hold them accountable. And don't just hold them accountable on some future day of judgment. Hold them accountable right now in the present in order to protect the mission that you have given me and your people in building this city to prepare for the coming king. God, do this. Respond in righteous anger, Lord. Now, Nehemiah himself, he is not angry. He's asking God to get angry. And he knows something about the character of God and God's compassionate heart. And that's what's prompting Nehemiah to pray for justice. Don't be, don't, don't just let Sanballat and Tobiah get away with this God. Now, our mission is different than Nehemiah's mission, right? Because we live on the other side of the coming of the king. The king that Nehemiah was preparing for, King Jesus, he actually came. And when he was dying right outside Nehemiah's wall, on the outside of the wall, outside the city, in the garbage heap of Golgotha at Mount Calvary, Jesus crucified on the cross, calls out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had taught his people, bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And there he is saying, Father, please cover their guilt. That Roman soldier right there, please blot out his transgression. That proud Pharisee over there, please forgive him, Father, for he knows not what he does. And that is the king who has saved you and has sent you out on a mission different than Nehemiah's mission. Not a defensive one of building more walls and protecting, 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 but going out in Jesus' name and loving the lost and praying, God, would you cover their guilt? This person I'm in conflict with right now, don't let them get away with their opposition to your gospel, God. But would you cover their guilt? Would you blot out their transgressions in Christ? Would you take what he did on the cross and count it for them, even for my enemy, Lord? And that's how Stephen prayed when he was being pelted to death with rocks. He took his cue from Jesus' prayer and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Um, Paul, in instructing the Ephesian church how to fight the good fight, he talked about putting on the full armor of God. And that inspired Charles Wesley to write this hymn. Uh, you might know the hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Here's just a few lines out of that hymn. Wesley says, Stand. Stand then in his great might, with all his strength endued, and take to aid you in the fight the armor of God. From strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray, tread all the powers of darkness down, and win the well-fought day. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul, Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. 
that having all things done and all your conflicts past, you may overcome through Christ alone and stand complete at last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the King of Kings. We thank you that he prayed for us, that you would forgive us. We pray, O oh Lord, uh, with whatever conflict we might have today, big or small, that we would be aware of your presence with us in the conflict, of the need to give you glory, of the opportunity to give you glory, whether we win or lose any of our present conflicts. And God, we pray that you would enable us in the Holy Spirit to stand, to stand in Christ alone, to stand rooted in the gospel of your grace. We pray, O oh God, for any who are truly being mocked and jeered and mistreated today, that they would find their strength to stand in you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.